0: Well, good morning. We're going to read Mark chapter 12 uh, this morning. That's Mark 12. And uh, please feel free to follow along with me. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat and others they killed, He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and he is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, "'Teacher, we know that you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, "'nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully.' Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's. They replied, Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven had married her. Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are mistaken. One of the scribes approached, and when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other command Greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that He is one, and there is no one else except Him. And to love Him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself, is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God, and no one dared to question him any longer. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And a large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses. And say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher punishment. Harsher judgment, sorry. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins, worth very little. And summoning his disciples, he said to them... Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. This is God's word to us. (laughs)
1: Are we doing <clears throat> amazing i'm so i'm so encouraged by you Um, Hello to those online and uh, for those in the building, especially for those who are new. um, uh, Just to add to Matt's welcome. Uh, We are heading towards the end of Mark's Gospel, still looking at this question of who is Jesus. And uh, thank you, Ian, for reading that so well, particularly given we just asked you only a few minutes ago. Um, Now, as we start, uh, let me draw attention to this picture. Uh, I'm going to have a few sort of uh, graffiti pictures uh, today. Just feeling that way inclined. This one was painted in Birmingham uh, during covid at the very beginning of lockdown, uh, and you know, it 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 represents that kind of that, that existential anguish in a way. That moment of kind of clarification, uh, that that kind of that repurposing, that something has to change in our hearts. Uh, that we cannot just keep living this dream, this simple dream for the pursuit of happiness. There has to be more to life. Now, many of us had kind of uh, maybe not such big existential moments, but we certainly had moments, didn't we? Uh, But certainly thinking through what is our life purpose as everything changed around us. Now, some of you will know uh, some of my, my story. Uh, I had a life purpose moment as I changed careers. Uh, from year two, I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. And uh, I pursued that dream all the way through and ended up working out at the RAF base uh, at Richmond for a number of years. It was the reason why Kel and I moved to Toongabi 10 years ago because we got sick of, well, I got sick of driving from Sutherland to Windsor. But when I approached one of the engineers who I'd long sought to earn the trust of uh, to tell him that I was going to quit, and go to Bible college, he said to me, Jesus Christ, Uh, he actually added an extra word in that but I've removed it for um, the sake of church, and I didn't know what to say, the answer of course actually was like, yes, that is the reason, but not quite the way you put it. It didn't make sense to him for me to trash what looked like a good career uh, for something so foolish, but for me it made perfect sense. I had a bigger picture in mind, my story was part of a bigger story, and it was not a hard thing, even though I had had wanted to do that for such a long time, to to move towards studying theology. Christians ought to be wide-eyed people, living part of a much bigger story. The question I think Jesus is putting before us in this chapter, at least as I want to present it, is, what are you living for? He's going to be answering a bunch of tests and questions that get to the root of life and particularly life under God. What are you living for is the question that rings out. Here's another bit of graffiti from Newtown. I walked past this nearly every day on the way to St. Stephen's. Love is the answer was written up high on that building. I often wonder how they get up there, right? But uh, as people would often quip, yes, we know that love is the answer, but what is the question? Love is indeed the answer. We're going to see that right in the center of this passage where we see Jesus' answer that loving God and loving neighbor sums up the whole law. But it's more complex than that. Love is the answer feels like just another kind of cultural moment uh, where people just go, yes, love is the answer. It sounds so easy. But there is a depth to this that Jesus is going to speak into, particularly in the context of people who hate him. What we see in this chapter is Jesus continuing in the face of increasing opposition. And we see how Jesus points faithfully and beautifully and winsomely to God. But the opening story is quite confronting and sits in this nexus of love and hate. Uh, It is in the context of Jesus speaking to the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Sanhedrin was uh, the 71 members of the Supreme Court, as it were, for the Jewish people in Jerusalem. It was made up of chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. And he begins by telling them a parable. This parable is Jesus' words of condemnation on them. For as long as they seek to kill him for the inheritance, there will be judgment and it will come swiftly. Now, Jesus paints a picture uh, in this parable of a man who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it. Uh, That man was a tenant farmer. Uh, It was actually a super contemporary issue. Uh, That is that there were many foreign owners uh, who had raised or had kind of installed local tenant farmers to to manage the farm while they were absent. Uh, It was actually a problem because there was widespread abuse of power they had seized land, forcing payments by those who used to farm it, and there was rising tension in Jesus' day that would spill into a revolt against particularly the Roman authorities. Now, that perhaps the crowd were looking for Jesus to speak into the injustice. As he begins this story, people might be looking for Jesus to be like, okay, here comes the man of justice. He's the man who's going to restore balance. After all, he's the Messiah, right? He's the one we have our hopes in. But that's not where this goes at all. Because there's another context here. For those who were well versed in the Old Testament, they would have heard how Israel was often described as a vineyard. Particularly in Isaiah 5. Last week we saw kind of Isaiah, Jeremiah um, and uh, Zechariah all kind of filling the backstory of what was happening. Again, it's happening here. Particularly as he speaks to those who are well versed in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 5, God describes Israel as God's beloved vineyard. But instead of producing a fruit, it was producing bad fruit. And so God would knock down the hedges, the walls, and let everything kind of creep in and destroy it. It is not a power-hungry landlord in the picture here, but it is the Lord who owns the vineyard. And the rent is due honor to the one who owns all, but gives Israel the particular privilege of stewarding that which is God's. But unlike Isaiah 5, the target audience here is not all of Israel. It's actually the tenant farmers, those who tend to the vine, those who look over the vineyard, over Israel. It is the Sanhedrin that he is speaking to. For God had sent many to Israel. Jeremiah 25 speaks of the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. Why? The same old lame human condition that we'd rather do things our way than listen to God. And that was prevalent in Israel as it is in all of us. And so throughout the history of the Old Testament, God sent prophet after prophet and they were killed, rejected, just like in this parable. Uh, The landowner sends messenger after messenger, but the tenant farmers kill them, beat them. It is atrocious. The tension climaxes in the moment of reckless love, even. One last messenger, one last chance, the landowner sends the son. Now, of course, we realize that Jesus is talking about himself at this point. God sent his one and only son, to Israel, to all of us. But instead of respecting the son, they say, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Surely this is the most heinous description of sin. Let us kill off God, as it were. Let us seize the inheritance let us live with all the things He's given us, but without Him in the way. <laughs> the religious leaders are living for their power, the commanding position of which they declare their own righteousness. Look at how Jesus describes them at the end of this passage. He said in his teachings, verse 38, beware of the scribes, that is part of the Sanhedrin, who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. He is pointing out again the hypocrisy. Those who look like they're living for God are seeking to kill the son so they can do it their way and they can maintain their status quo. And in just a couple of chapters' time, they will indeed have their way with Jesus, sending Jesus to his death, the personal messenger of God, the heir of the Father, the one who came to be ser- not to be served, but to serve the Messiah that they could not see. Will God just let this happen? Will the landowner just kind of, oh, well, they've killed another one? No. No. Well, yes, he does let it happen. In his sovereign plan, he will show how the the, uh, stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, but he will also come swiftly in his response. And it's confronting for our ears, isn't it? We kind of expect maybe something a little softer. But what we read here, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Jesus here is speaking of a swift judgment. And just as we read over into the next chapter, which which Matt will give us next week. Well, I'm on holidays. It's a very tricky passage. Thanks, Matt. Um, (laughs) we, We will see how there will not be a stone left unturned of the temple. God's judgment will come swiftly, especially on the leaders of Israel. But as I said, that stone, as Jesus goes on to quote, Psalm 118, again, the same psalm that was quoted uh, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus' death will not be the end. They think they have won by killing God to get on with their own life as they see fit. But instead, Jesus will rise from the dead and those that they rejected will actually become the cornerstone of something entirely new. The vine will be fruitful again, but it will not be theirs. It will be open for all, and Jesus will see fit that the whole earth will bow before Jesus on bended knee and confess that he indeed is Lord. God's sovereign plans will not be thwarted even by religious leaders. Now, when I put up on the screen here, living for the inheritance, that's, I've picked up on that, kind of, that verse 7 particularly, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. It also makes me think of another parable that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel, that moment where the two sons of the father, uh, where the youngest one, says to the father, I want my inheritance. And what he means by that is, Father, I wish you were dead so that I could get what you owe me when you die now, and I can just spend it the way I want. I'm kind of tired of living under you. <laughs> it is a picture of sin for all of us, not just the religious leaders here. This idea that we would want to kill off God and spend that which He has given us, for He has given us all things, to do whatever the heck we want with it. And so I still ask the question, what are you living for? Are you going to be one like the religious leaders, or one like the younger son in that parable, to say, I want to live for the inheritance? Or will you recognize that even as that younger son in the parable of Luke 15, realises the error of his ways when it's all depleted and returns to the father, probably expecting a beating, but instead receives the embrace of a loving father of mercy, for there is always mercy in God when we return to him, so that we might receive an inheritance of eternal value, that which moth and rust cannot destroy. What are you living for? Is the question. The religious leaders are unperturbed. The only reason they don't act just out their intentions to kill him is because they are scared of the crowd. So they send more questions. They sent the Pharisees and the Herodians, verse 13, to Jesus to trap him in his words. And when they came to him, they said to him, and Mark gives us the clue here, of course, that they have come with intentions to trap him. But look at the ridiculous, mocking, flattery teacher. We know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. What tribe. <laughs> Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This, my friends, is an extraordinary question. It is extraordinarily loaded and especially in context. This is not a question of curiosity. See, in 6 AD, you know, just prior to Jesus' ministry, life, Roman occupiers of Palestine had imposed a census tax on the Jewish people. The tribute, as you can imagine, was not well received. And by the time Jesus is speaking, the Roman historian Tacitus writes The provinces too of Syria and Judea, exhausted by their burdens, implored a reduction of the tribute. That's very well put because what was actually happening on the ground was the beginning of a tax revolt. Judas the Galilean, a zealot, led a freedom movement and he chanted, taxation was no better than the introduction to slavery and so he commanded people to make a choice that either emperor was divine or God was divine, what will you do? What will you choose? And so the Pharisees, knowing that context, try and trap Jesus into a position that's going to cause him trouble. What would you say? I mean, you'd expect perhaps maybe the Shema, which he's going to quote later on, where, listen, O Israel, the Lord, O God, is one as he stands firm that indeed God is supreme, not Caesar. That would make sense. What would happen then? (laughs) The revolt would have gone ballistic. Jesus actually ups the ante. He really makes this far more rich and complex. He grabs a coin. I've got here a 50 cent coin, soon to be outdated, with the head of the queen on the back of it, right? That is a tradition that goes way, way back, perhaps to the very first coins, perhaps to the coin that Jesus actually picks up. It's a denarii. Denari's, oh sorry, coins then were kind of, uh, well, were used as political propaganda. There was no Facebook then. There was no kind of uh, posters on telegraph poles. There was instead things that were handled by everyday people in people's hands all the time, reminding them of a message used for political weight. Because on this picture... On this coin, two sides, is the head of state, Tiberius. And on the other side is Pax, the god of peace. Now, written around that coin is Ticisor Divi Augustus, which means Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the god Augustus. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty serious, right? That is a serious message of propaganda. And on the other side... This picture of Pax, it says Pontiff Maxim, which means high priest. Can you see how religiously loaded this is? Can you see how people were being called to, to worship Caesar as God? As Jesus holds this up, again, do you expect him to rail against the authorities? How dare they inscribe that which belongs to God on this puny little coin? Well, we know what he says. He says, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Massively unexpected. They were utterly amazed at him. Even the protagonist, hoping to trap him, had their heads exploded. Picture the scene, right? The Son of God, the High Priest of Peace himself, newly proclaimed by his people to be king, holding this little coin of the little son of God or pretending to be one. And Jesus says, give to this little king what he wants. It doesn't mean much to me, but render to God what is God's. He refuses to play into the power play. He doesn't invoke a revolt of power For his kingship is on an entirely different plane. It will not be one with might, but in the most upside down way of service, of sacrifice, through the cross, through death. But what he says kind of prompts the question, right? What is Caesar's and what is God's? For God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the rulers are his, the powers are under his power. For God as king saw fit not to inscribe the image, his image on mere coins, but in us as image bearers made to rule under him as part of worship. What I find amazing in God's sovereignty is even this idolatrous blasphemy inscribed on this coin has a place in God's reign. For God uses all things, even those that oppose him, as part of his sovereign plan to see Jesus glorified. The Apostle Peter will capture this when he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Now, while there's no caveat in there to say if the emperor is Christian or not, he does say, be subject for the Lord's sake. That is, when we render to God what is God's, Jesus is calling us as image bearers of Him to live whole lives for Him. Not a sort of a church and state divide, but our whole life for Him. And as we honour the authorities of the day, that is part of our worship to God. Now I have to note, there are going to be times that those two things are in conflict, where you cannot honour the institution of the day and worship God. Jesus didn't see that to be in play right at that point, even as they called for blasphemous worship of uh, the god Caesar. But where those two things are in play, Jesus calls us not to a power versus power dynamic, but to subvert through service and sacrifice in a cross-like way. Whether it be like Corrie ten Boom, uh, who was the Dutch, um, uh, the Dutch woman who hid... Jews in her basement during the Nazi campaign. You can read about it in her book, The Hiding Place. She had to choose to, to lie, to, to subvert government, to steal even. These are all things that God calls us not to do. But she did these things because they sat in a higher order of worship. And the abomination of leadership of the authority of her day was in stark contrast to what it meant to worship God. But the way that she went about it was in humble service and sacrifice, at great cost to herself. Or Martin Luther King, for example, as he politically called for systemic change. And he did this in bold ways, and yet his restraint in nonviolence was drawn heavily on the Scriptures or even the disciples themselves. He will be called as martyrs for living for Christ even when the authority of the day sought to squash the Jesus movement. Friends, what are you living for? Live for God while you live in this world, engaged in both honoring and, where necessary, resisting the authorities in the world. But above all, give to God what is God's. Worship him with your whole lives. And then comes the next question. The Sadducees, verse 18, who say there is no resurrection came to him and questioned him. So again, Mark gives us context. Teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Uh, that comes from Leviticus. It's a way of preserving the family line, which was very important then. It was also a way of protecting women who might, be, um, uh, who might not have a means to care for themselves uh, in that predicament. And they go on. The, there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left. And all, it just goes on and on. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument ad absurdum. Ad absurdum that, that is kind of to, to make such a preposterous claim that, that the opposite must be true. That is that there is no resurrection, right? That's what they're gunning for. In the resurrection, they say, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Boom. (laughs) Here are the religious elite. (laughs) And Jesus just shoots them down. Uh, Verse 25, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As Jesus speaks to uh, what heaven will be like, he helps them reframe how they might live now. For the now is joined to forever as we live for Jesus now and forever. But he goes on. He says this, he says... um, Uh, And as for the dead being raised, that is, he actually goes for the heart of the issue, that is, their disbelief in the resurrection. Haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, all whom were dead at that point. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus opens their eyes, our eyes. So that we might not just live for this moment, but that we might live for life eternal. And just to keep on theme here, if there is no marriage in heaven, then we ought not to live like our life is only fulfilled when we're married with 2.3 kids and a dog. Is that still the thing, the average, the thing we're going for? The pictures on the back of our cars? (laughs) Now, this is not to demonize marriage. Kelly and I just finished running the Strengthening Marriage courses. But our intimacy, our joy, our purpose will never come from status, from this life, but the other way around. Our place in heaven will inform our life now. So how plausible is it that the single person or the same-sex attracted person be able to find joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction without sexual intimacy? In the world's eyes, that is preposterous. But as people of God who believe in the resurrection, believe that that's where satisfaction is to be found, both now and forever, where joy and peace is found in abundance, where we are known and where we know God in all perfection, where we find our belonging at our deepest level. That is what Jesus is calling us to, to live in light of that, and for those that don't have eyes to see the resurrection, he says, "You are badly mistaken. Do not live just for now. but live for all eternity. Know the power of God who forms this community, not as individual families, but as a family, a foretaste of heaven. What are you living for? This moment? all for life now and forevermore with God. This is where I'll finish up on this section. One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating. And saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, "Which command is the most important of all?" It feels like one of those kind of um, scenes in a movie where there's kind of like a bunch of people fighting the good guy, and he's beating them all off, and there's one guy left standing, right? And he's like, "I'll have my shot, right?" Is is that the scribe here approaches Jesus with another testing question, having seen how Jesus obliterated everyone who stood before him, and shown and debunked kind of their questions, right? But this is his question: Which command is the most important at all, uh, of all? And Jesus says this, The most important is, quoting directly from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. The the Shema in Hebrew meaning listen. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. A quote from Leviticus 19. There is no other command greater than these. For the Sanhedrin, who keep being exposed for their hypocrisy, for those looking to, to live life under God, to find purpose, meaning, hope. Jesus calls them all to find their meaning, to find their purpose in love. Love is the answer but especially to love God and to love your neighbor. Now, Jesus has been living in the intersection of these two things, for his whole life has been a life of of dependence, of love of the Father. But as he goes about loving neighbors, uh, not just the people who live next door to him, but the concrete person who is in front of him, the person who is in need, the person who is demon-possessed, the person who is hungry, the person who is sick, we see time and time again Jesus loves them. But not just kind of a warm, cuddly hug, he loves them in the love of God in the hope that they would find that which empowers him, God's love. The way we love neighbours ought to be, directing people to find a greater love, the love of God. Now I say these things to speak against kind of the, the modern mantra, this cultural moment of love being the answer. It's as simple as that, as though God could be reduced to love. Yes, God is love. But as we love Him, we come to know Him. We come to know what He expects of us, of how to please Him. That has a particularity to it. Even commandments, even obedience, even repentance. And as we love God, we see how He loves all of us, all of us made in His image. And so we go about loving our neighbor. Now this is such a big passage, particularly drawing on such a rich tradition of the Shema that uh, Ryan Verghese is going to preach on Deuteronomy 6 in a couple of weeks' time. And we have him up as part of his deputation. But let us at least see how Jesus is summing up all of the laws, all of the Old Testament, all that he is calling for us to live out in loving God and loving our neighbour, for all of the laws, all of the Old Testament, are summed up in that. What I find particularly interesting here is when this scribe hears that answer, the scribe says to him, You're right, teacher. Warning when you're giving approval of Jesus, right? You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him, and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) The irony of that is here is a scribe who would normally pronounce judgment over such things, who would normally be the one to say to people of Israel, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven, as though he were there and had it all sorted. Jesus now says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It is not enough to know the law. It is not enough to simply know how to live. It is not enough simply to know the Scriptures. It is not enough to simply know of God. How you enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is to know Jesus. It is not a question of what are you living for? It is who are you living for? For as much as we read about loving God with all our strength, all our might, all our soul, all our heart, we know that in our heart of hearts we don't love God that much. Our heart hides the devices and desires of our own will. And yet, we... ...who know Jesus are responding to the one who loved us first. For while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And while the scribes and the Sanhedrin will think that they will have their way with Jesus... ...as he dies on the cross, as we've seen, it is the stone the builders rejected that will become the cornerstone. This is the beginning of the kingdom of God and the welcome of all by grace... Not by law. And as we know Jesus, as we respond to him, as we receive that gift of salvation through faith and repentance, we realize that we are fully known, that our hearts are fully laid out before him, and he loves us still. How much does he love us? With arms open wide, nailed to a cross, to die where we ought to die under judgment as Jesus speaks at the beginning of the passage. Friends, we have the privilege of being loved by God in Christ. We are called to respond to him in love, to live for him all our days until we see him face to face. Friends, who are you living for? Both now and forevermore. There is no other name that saves than Jesus. And so as we think about living for inheritance, let it not be an inheritance of this moment, but a kingdom inheritance. As we think about living for God in the world, let us realize that God is above all things. As we think about living for eternity, let us keep our eyes fixed on what is above. And as we think about living out love, let us respond to the one who loved us first. Let me pray, and uh, then if there's any questions or comments, I think we've got a few minutes that I could take those. That could be even over the last couple of chapters, or anything that God's put on your heart this morning. Um, Matt will whip around with the microphone in a moment, but for now, let me pray. Father, we see in this passage people coming to Jesus with their own desires, with their own ideas of who you are. Father, we confess that our heart is full of all kinds of stuff that is the opposite of what you would want for us. And yet, Jesus has cut through all of that so that we might be found loved and forgiven and welcomed. And so let us open up our hearts to you, that we might live for you above all things. So show us, Father, the ways that we are not doing this that we might worship you in everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.